Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 28. The Apostle Paul has finally made it to Rome. Help, Tony. So he's, uh, he's been on this long journey, uh, which has ended in a horrendous shipwreck on Malta. They finally, after three months of staying there, uh, made it to the city of Rome. So he's still uh, incarcerated, but uh, we'll pick it up in verse 17 of Acts chapter 28. And I'll be reading down through verse 25, so please give careful attention to the reading of God's holy word. After three days, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. And when they came together, he began saying to them, Brethren, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they were willing to release me because there was no ground for putting me to death. But when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any accusation against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you, for I'm wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. They said to him, We have neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you. But we desire to hear from you and what your views are. For concerning this sect, it is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. But when they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. And that parting word is going to be a quotation from Isaiah. And we'll deal with that, Lord willing, next week. So may God bless the reading of His Word. Well, notice that once Paul is in Rome, his first desire is to preach the gospel to the Jews. This was his custom. As he wrote to the Roman church Uh, Earlier, he said he's bringing the gospel to the Jew first and then to the Greek. So that was his practice and that's what he's doing here in Rome. He longed for their salvation. In Romans 10 verse 1, it says, Brethren, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for them, that is the Jews, is for their salvation. Because most had rejected the Messiah. Most were under the condemnation of God. And yet he wanted to bring the gospel to them. So starting in verse 17, after three days of uh, being in Rome, he's still under the charge of a Roman uh, soldier. He calls the leading men of the Jews to meet with him in verse 17. Now at this time, there's a fairly large uh, Jewish community in Rome. Some say there as many as forty to 50,000 But you have to take into consideration that a decade earlier, Claudius the emperor had expelled the Jews out of Rome. And then he died four years after that. So it's been about six years and Jews have been coming back into the city. Don't know for sure how many were there. But uh, some said at least at one time there were ten synagogues in Rome. So there could have been a, a sizable Jewish population. Notice in verse 17, he calls them brethren. Brethren according to the flesh, not according to the Spirit. 
But he begins in verses uh, 17 through 20 to basically explain why he wanted to see them. And in a nutshell, in verse 17, he says, I've done nothing wrong against the Jewish people. In verse 18, he says, I've done nothing against the Roman law. In verse 19, he said, still the Jews objected, so I had to appeal to Caesar. And in verse 20, he says, I'm wearing this chain, memory still a prisoner, for the sake of the hope of Israel. And what he meant by the hope of Israel is not only the coming of the Jewish Messiah and the salvation that he would bring, but ultimately the resurrection and glory that he would, he would perform. In verse 21 and 22, uh, Luke, the author of the book of Acts, gives us the response of these leading Jews. In verse 21, it's basically ignorance. We haven't heard anything about you from the churches in Judea. So we don't know anything about you. But in verse 22, they're interested. They want to learn more. So even though they're ignorant, they're also interested. Notice they say at the end of verse 22 that concerning this sect, it is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. Now the sect he's referring to is, is Christianity, obviously. And the word sect could have pejorative connotations. Doesn't always have to. Uh, the Sadducees and the Pharisees are referred to as Jewish sects. So it doesn't necessarily mean a, a negative, but probably here it does. So if the Jews in Rome had not heard anything bad about Paul, they had heard nothing good about the church or Christianity. So knowing that, he wants to uh, share the gospel with them and minister to them. Now some things never change. The church is always going to be, nothing good is going to be said about us for the most part in the world. It's kind of the lot of the church to be maligned in the world. Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Thank you. So don't, don't expect that the world is going to commend us. Uh, it will more than likely malign us. And that's to be understood. So they hadn't heard anything good about this sect. And that's probably true today for the most part as well. So notice in verse 23. So they set a day uh, for Paul and they came back to his lodging in large numbers. So there's a large number of leading Jews that have come together. Even though they didn't know that much about Paul, they must have known that he was an expert in things about Christianity, that he was a leading spokesman for Christianity. So they were interested. So a large crowd uh, show up at his dwelling place. And it says in verse 23 that he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning till evening. So this is a day-long gospel seminar. And what's interesting is what he emphasizes. He emphasizes the kingdom of God and also Jesus. And I think it's, uh, it's interesting that he begins with the idea of the kingdom of God because most of us are not all that familiar with the concept of a king or a kingdom. Uh, for Americans, we have a hard time identifying with this. We fought a war to get rid of a king. So they're not very popular in America. Uh, our own constitutional republic is, says that we the people are the kings. We're the ultimate highest human authority in our system of government. So the idea of being ruled by a king is foreign to us. Even our constitution says that the government is prohibited from giving any title of nobility to any citizen. 
So they couldn't give a title of king or prince or duke. The closest thing we can come up to in our culture is a, you know, a high school homecoming queen. Or if you've watched enough beer commercials, Budweiser, the king of beers. You know, that's about as close as we get to royalty in our own sad culture. But if you look at the concept of the kingdom of God, this is very, very important in Scripture. Let's see here. I can get this to work. Nope. You're going to have to move. Do what? It is working? Oh, it's working up there. It's not working. Oh, okay. There we go. Okay, so when you look at the kingdom of God, you just have to understand how dominant it was in the ministry of John the Baptist and also our Lord. Both of them in their ministry went about preaching, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The word kingdom is found over 160 times in the New Testament. Luke in his gospel refers to the kingdom of God over 40 times. And so it is a very, very important concept for us to understand. Even so in the book of Acts, because we see that Christ, after He arose from the dead, and He began to appear to His uh, disciples over a period of 40 days, He was speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So after Christ rose from the dead, his ministry and his resurrection appearance is focused on the kingdom of God. We also know that Philip went about preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. We read uh, later on in Acts chapter 19 when the Apostle Paul entered into the synagogue at uh, Ephesus that he was persuading them about the kingdom of God. And later on when he met with the elders... Uh, from Ephesus, he said he summed up his three-year ministry at Ephesus by saying that I went about preaching the kingdom. So for three years, he preached the kingdom of God. And of course, this is the emphasis of our Lord here in uh, Acts 28 and verse 23. And then look at the very last verse of Acts chapter 28. Paul, for two years, was preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. So he was preaching the kingdom of God. And most people think, well, that's just a Jewish idea. It's not just Jewish. It's very much involved in in the church. So when you look at the, the focus on the kingdom of God, you find that this would have been something the Jewish leaders certainly would have been very interested in because they anticipated the coming of their Messiah, who would be a a king, who would defeat their enemies, who would elevate Israel over all the nations of the earth. And that was their view of the kingdom and the coming of the king. But they failed to see that the kingdom of God is really more complex than that. And so what I'd like to do, these, these are probably some of the things that Paul was emphasizing to these Jewish leaders But what I'd like to do is just kind of walk through some elementary concepts dealing with the kingdom of God. One of them, let's see, where am I? Uh, I'm going to have to have you advance the slide, please. Kingdom of God, really, when we talk about the kingdom of God, it has two aspects to it. We speak of the reign of the kingdom and the realm of the kingdom. The reign of the kingdom is just God's active sovereign rule and control over His creation. The king reigns. That's that's an easy idea to understand. The word kingdom also involves an area over which He reigns. This would be the realm. This would be the territory, the land over which the king rules. So the kingdom of God has the reign aspect, the reign of the king, the governance of the king, and also the realm over which He rules. Now by God's design, when He created the heavens and the earth and He created Adam and Eve, they were to reign on the earth in His stead. 
So if you go to the uh, next one on the cultural mandate. So what God did is when He created the earth, He created Adam and Eve in His own image. And they were to represent God on the earth. And God's righteous reign on the earth was to be through His image bearers. This is the way He set it up. So in Genesis 1, we're told that Adam and Eve were created in His image. In verse 28, He gave them the creation mandate or the cultural mandate which involves go out and be fruitful and multiply and subdue it and rule. So they were to rule over the Garden of Eden. They were to rule over the earth as they began to spread out. They were entrusted with the responsibility to reign, to be God's vice regents, to rule and reign in the place of God and have a righteous rule and reign on the earth. That's what they were supposed to do. Uh, In Psalm 8... The same thing is uh, echoed there where Psalm 8 says, where God, speaking of God making Adam and Eve, you have made man to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So Adam and Eve were to manifest the righteous reign of God's kingdom on earth. They were the ones who were to reign and rule in righteousness on the earth. Well, what happened? The serpent, the sin, and suddenly this righteous reigning of God through His image bearers now was turned upside down. Sin began to, to reign instead of the righteous kingdom of God through His image bearers. And God's righteous reign on earth was basically uh, thwarted according to God's decretive will. It was hijacked by the serpent and by sin so that instead of Adam and Eve ruling in God's place with a righteous kingdom ruling over the earth, instead we have sin ruling, death ruling, and Satan ruling. And they became basically the the slaves of, of Satan. So the kingdom of God now comes in and begins to continue to develop, but as a rescue mission to save sinners and restore the righteous rule of God on the earth that Adam and Eve lost. So through the old covenants, through God's covenant with Abraham and Moses and David, God begins to reestablish the framework for His kingdom. But because men were sinners, the righteous rule of God was always imperfect and temporary. And even with uh, David, Though there were some good kings that came from David, most were bad. So the righteous kingdom was never really manifested because the people on earth were all sinners. But eventually in the Old Testament, God promised that He would bring in a new covenant. And that covenant would have a king. And this king would be a righteous king. And if you look at the the new covenant, if you look at the different things that are promised... To David, God said, one of your sons is going to sit on an everlasting throne. And other promises said that he would rule over a righteous kingdom. His kingdom would be one of righteousness. He would be perfect. He would be the perfect king. And as we move into the New Testament, we find that Jesus Christ fulfills that kingship perfectly. He is the image of the invisible God. So he, he, he is able to accomplish what the earlier image bearers failed to do. Adam and Eve, who fell into sin and lost the righteous reign of God on the earth. Christ as our King not only is the image of the invisible God, He will defeat our enemies. He has on the cross, sin, death, Satan. And now He rules in heaven. So that ultimately, Christ is the one who will be the righteous king to restore God's righteous rule on earth. And ultimately, that will be the new earth forever and ever. So you can see the concept of the kingdom was entrusted to Adam and Eve. They lost it. But ultimately, the second Adam would come and restore it. So when we think about the kingdom of God, and I think this is some of this is what Paul would have been teaching uh, these Jewish leaders is that there is a present 
aspect of the kingdom. And there is a future aspect of the kingdom. So believers now are in the kingdom of God. We're in the kingdom of Christ. Uh, The church, the kingdom is being lived out in and through the church. As God now reigns in the hearts of God's people. That is the present form of the kingdom of God. God reigning in the hearts of His children. Not perfectly because we still have a sin nature. But it is a spiritual kingdom that is now. And it's a kingdom that focuses primarily on salvation. So for example in Colossians 1. Paul writes that He rescued us from the domain of darkness, that would be the kingdom of Satan, and transferred us where? To the kingdom of His beloved Son. So every believer has been rescued out of the kingdom of Satan and been transferred into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of His beloved Son. Now the fact that this is a spiritual kingdom, Christ indicated when He spoke to Pilate, and Pilate asked him if he, if he was a king. And he said, my kingdom is not of this world. See, it's a different kind of kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. But it's now. It's not all just a future kingdom. It is, it is a present kingdom now. Jesus also indicated this in Matthew 12. When he said, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It wasn't promised and then rejected and postponed the kingdom came and the fact that you know it came jesus said is because i'm casting out demons i'm showing my kingship my judgment my authority over the demonic realm and i do it by the spirit of god that is proof that i am bringing the kingdom with me the kingdom that adam and eve and all the subsequent descendants of Adam and Eve could never bring in because of their sin, Jesus Christ is bringing them in. Bringing in that kingdom. In Romans 14, Paul says that the kingdom of God, that's the present spiritual form of the kingdom, is not eating and drinking, but righteousness. See, that's that's God reigning in righteousness in our life. It's a kingdom of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's a kingdom that's within us. It's Christ reigning on the throne in us. Again, not perfectly because we still struggle with sin. But it is a kingdom nonetheless that is taking place and is growing. Jesus is the King. He said in the Great Commission, All authority has been given me in heaven and on earth. So right now, He has all authority. He is the King of the universe. He is the Lord over all things. He has all authority, all power, all dominion. So there is a present form that Jesus brought in of the kingdom. And every believer in Jesus Christ is a member, a citizen of that kingdom. But there's also a future form of it. And for this, we can look, for example, from what The Apostle Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.1 that solemnly I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead by His appearance and His kingdom. So this future form or phase of the kingdom will be brought in when Jesus Christ comes back at His second coming. And then He brings the fullness of the kingdom See, the kingdom now that we have is a, you could call it kind of a first fruits of the kingdom. It's imperfect. It's invisible. It doesn't sit on the thrones of men because basically we are still sinners. We still have the flesh. But we are destined for glory. And when Jesus Christ comes back, He will bring in the final consummation of His kingdom. So there's a present spiritual form dealing with salvation. And there'll be a future consummation form that will do two things. It will bring judgment to all unbelievers and it will bring glorification to the That's when our soul and body will be joined together and glorified forever. 
As for the judgment, look at Revelation 19, verse 15 and 16. This is uh, dealing with the second coming. When Christ comes back from His mouth, comes a sharp sword, so that with it He may strike down the nations, and He will rule them with a rod of iron. And He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on His robe and on His thigh He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So when Christ comes back, He will come to judge all of His enemies forever. He will ultimately cast them into the lake of fire forever. So when the consummation of the kingdom comes, it will come in judgment upon all who have refused to bow the knee before King Jesus now. And He will come and He will judge them with, with a, an awesome severity of, of wrath and judgment. Well, they'll be cast into again the lake of fire and everlasting torment forever because they have rebelled against the King. His title is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But not only will He judge His enemies in 1 Corinthians 15, He will also bring glorification for His own people. So, in, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, this flesh and blood cannot inherit the consummation and the glory of the kingdom yet to come. This flesh and blood cannot enter into the presence of a holy God because we are still sinful. We must be transformed before our soul and body is able to... Our soul is with the Lord now, but before our body can enter into the presence of the Lord. So flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet... For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. So what will happen then when Christ comes back? You'll have the sheep-goat judgment. The goats will be condemned to everlasting punishment. The sheep will be glorified and be given a body that can enjoy the fullness of the glory of God in heaven forever. That kingdom will reign on the, on the new earth, by the way. That will be the realm of of the kingdom. It will be on the new earth. So the Apostle Paul is uh, preaching to these Jews about the kingdom of God. They had a warped, distorted view of the kingdom of God. And Christ is, or Paul is telling them about how Christ fulfills that kingdom. He is the king. And they need to bow before him. They need to repent and believe in him if they want their sins forgiven. And so he preached to them the kingdom of God that Christ is now on his throne, that he's now ruling and reigning in heaven. And one day he will come and judge his enemies. Repent, because the kingdom of God has come. The king has come. He's died on the cross to save us from our sins, but he now reigns in heaven. And then if you look in verse 23. He's persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets. Because Jesus is that monarch. He is the king of the kingdom. He is the one who is able to do what no one else has been able to do. To bring in a kingdom where there is a righteous king and a righteous citizen. And he did that when he came and, uh, and saved his people. Notice he says from the law of Moses. So he probably went through all the uh, prophecies in uh, the Pentateuch, the types, the animal sacrifices, all that foretold the coming of the Messiah, the shed blood, the atonement for sins, that he would be a prophet like Moses. And then he explained to them the prophets were all the prophets who foretold of this righteous son of David who had rule and righteousness he would be God himself in human flesh that he would sacrifice himself Isaiah 53 for our sins and pay the penalty and justify those who believe in him that he would rise from the dead 
And all of this was so that he could rule as a righteous king over his kingdom. So he preached to them the kingdom of God and he also preached to them Jesus Christ who fulfills all of the promises and the prophecies about the coming king. Well, how did they respond? Well, in verse 24, we're told some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. So the gospel always divides. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's foolishness to the Gentiles. But you see, these Jews, many of them did not believe. Some did. Most probably didn't. Because it wasn't their view of the kingdom. They were expecting an earthly king to set up an earthly throne to fight against their enemies, to overthrow the Romans, to elevate Israel over all the nations of the earth. And yet, Paul, you're telling us that the king, you say our king, our Messiah, was crucified by the enemy on a cross? They couldn't buy into that. And so many of them did not respond in faith. Some did, but others did not. So that was his heart, is to preach the gospel to them, to tell them about the kingdom of God. And I thought in uh, kind of wrapping this up, I wanted to just uh, touch on a few practical lessons uh, dealing with the kingdom of God since we are citizens of the kingdom even today. You and I as brothers and sisters in Christ. So I want to begin by saying is how does someone then enter the kingdom of God? It's a very, very important aspect of teaching on the kingdom. The kingdom of God is very, very important in the ministry of our Lord in the New Testament. It's a very important concept. So how does someone enter the kingdom of God? Well, Jesus made it very clear that you must be born again. Or you could translate that, you must be born from above. Well, what does that mean? Be born again or born from above? Well, it's something that you cannot do. I cannot do it. Nobody can cause them to be born again. That is a sovereign work of Almighty God. And yet Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, that you cannot see the kingdom of God, you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you're born from above, born from the Spirit. Well, the significance of being born again is because you will never repent and believe in Jesus Christ unless your heart has been changed. And the new birth, which is a sovereign activity of Almighty God to the elect that He's chosen from before the foundations of the world, takes our spiritually dead heart and He resurrects it. He implants spiritual life. So we are born again. The, the idea of born again, when a baby's born, there, it, it emerges out in life. Of course, it has life from conception, but from the birth, there's the outward visible manifestation of life. There's, there's life. And when we are born from above or born again, God implants that new life within the heart. And suddenly, when you're born again, you're sensitive to your sin. Suddenly, you're burdened by it. And you want to be forgiven. And you hear the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And suddenly, Christ, whom you could care less about, suddenly is precious to you. Because I'm a sinner, I deserve the judgment of God, but Jesus Christ can heal me. He can save me. He can forgive me. Oh Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Forgive me of my sins. And that turning from my sin to want forgiveness and to believe in Christ as my Lord and Savior would never happen if we're not first born Again, you must be born again. Of course, Nicodemus didn't understand what he was saying. But Jesus makes that very clear that you must first receive the grace of the new birth from above, from God. You can't produce it yourself. And that will cause you 
to repent and believe. That's what the Lord says. John says back in John chapter 1. That we receive Him who were born not of flesh or the will of man, but of God. We're born of God. And that's why we receive Him in faith as our Lord and Savior. So I don't know where you are this morning. I, don't, I trust that most of you know the Lord. Some of you may not. But if you are burdened by your sin, if you recognize that you have broken the commandments of God, and that you stand really one day before the judge and He will condemn you for your sin, but you want forgiveness, you want to be saved, then come to Jesus Christ. And if you can turn from your sin and put your faith in Christ alone to save you, then that is evidence that you've been born of God, that you've been born from above. So how do you enter the kingdom of God? You must be born again, and out of that heart change comes true living faith that embraces Christ for salvation. Well, what are some of the applications of being in the kingdom of God? Well, Christ rules in our life, not perfectly, because we still have a sin nature. But some of the practical implications are that being in His kingdom is that you have a king, and I have a king, and it's not you and it's not me. Part of the the practical significance of being a citizen of the kingdom of God today is that every believer has a king to rule their life. And this is where we as Americans in particular have to get out of this, this notion that I rule myself, that I have a king and I'm to be under his rule. So the result of being a member of the kingdom of God is that number one, we certainly have the joy and duty to obey our King and to live under His authority and under His Word. So the Word of God is one of those implications because our King has given to us the Word of God to guide us in every area of life. So for me to be in His kingdom, to have Jesus Christ as my King, implies that I need to live under the commands of my King. And I find those in the Word of God. I need to enjoy and relish the promises of my King. And I find those in the Word of God. So the Word of God is absolutely essential to citizenship in the Kingdom of God. Because the Word is given to us by our King. And really to be a citizen in the Kingdom as every believer is, We should embrace His comprehensive rule over every area of our our life. We're to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And this is a far deeper level of commitment than just asking Jesus into my heart so I can be saved and go live my life any way I want. No, if you're in the kingdom of God, you have a king and the king will rule over you through His word. And that means that we will have a new life and a new identity And that kingdom citizenship calls us away from self-indulgence or self-independence or self-autonomy or self-sufficiency. No, no. I'm under the authority of my king, not me. I don't make the rules. My king does. And part of the practical application of living in the kingdom of God, kingdom of Christ, is that we have His Word to rule over us and to guide us. So are there areas of our lives that are not under the reign and rule of Jesus Christ? Maybe the way we spend our money. Maybe the way we we do our work. Maybe there are miscellaneous activities or whatever it is. As a citizen of His kingdom we should find as our joy and duty to bring every area under His authority, His reign, His rule. Because He is our King. So the Word of God is one of the aspects, an important aspect to guide us. So we should pray, not my will, but Thine be done. Because it's not ultimately my will, but God's will that should be important to me. 
There's also an aspect of worship that's involved in being in the kingdom of Christ. Revelation 5, verse 13 said, And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. So part of what it means to be a citizen in the kingdom of Christ is we worship our King. And that in part is what we're doing this morning in this service. We worship the Lamb of God. And we bless Him and praise Him and give Him glory. Worship is important. There's also war is important being a citizen in the kingdom because we're not perfect yet as I've already alluded to. Paul tells the Roman believers, chapter 6, verse 12 of his letter to the Romans that he wrote a number of years earlier, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you obey its lusts. So we're in a battle. As citizens of the kingdom, we're in a battle. Because my king tells me to live this way. But my sin in my mortal body will always try to pull me over to live a different way contrary to the will of my king. So there's an ongoing battle that we all have to engage in. We're to destroy every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We're to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. This is what it means to have a king. And I'm struggling with living under the authority and the reign and rule of my king because my sin wants to rebel and resist. And it's a spiritual battle that we have to engage in every day. Put on the full armor of God. So there will be a battle in the kingdom of God. When Christ comes back, all enemies will be thrown down, including our sin, our flesh, and we will serve Him with a sinless, perfect heart. But not today. There's a battle and a war going on. And finally, there's a witness. Practical implication of being in the kingdom of Jesus Christ is we should bear witness. We should pray as the Lord taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come. And what does that mean to pray that? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come. Lord, come in salvation now. Expand your spiritual kingdom. Save more sinners. Lord, bring your kingdom. Thy kingdom come. But also, O Lord Jesus, come. Bring in the glory. And it involves really both aspects. The present spiritual kingdom of salvation and the future kingdom of judgment and glorification. Oh, Thy kingdom come. We long for it. We should. See, everyone will bow the knee to Jesus, either now willingly in repentant faith, or on the judgment day when He forces them to bow the knee to acknowledge His Lordship. And finally, what are the blessings of being in the kingdom of God. Well, one of those is that we're under the protection of our king. Your king protects you. Our king Jesus is a mighty warrior who cannot be defeated. There is no limit to his power. There's no power in the universe that can stay his hand or thwart his will. He rules over all authorities and powers and dominions. And He has promised to protect His people. He created all things and stretched out the heavens with His hands. And yet the Lord Jesus says to His sheep, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of My hands. Our king's hands are omnipotent of their salvation. Not Satan, not sin, not death, not the world. He has triumphed over all of them. He has promised to build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. And though we have many enemies in this life, our king will ultimately triumph over them. Our sin can cause us to lose His ultimate final protection. And though we will stumble often, 
Sin will not be master over us, for we're not under law, but under grace. And I love that when, when, when the Lord was telling Peter, He said, Simon, Simon, Satan, His protection. Will we stumble? His prayers, His grace, continue being in His kingdom is that we're under His protection. We're also in His family. We've been adopted into His family. We are heirs of the eternal legal title to heaven. Because our King has adopted us so that now we are a kingdom of priests. We are sons and daughters of the King. And that blessing will guarantee our ultimate presence with the Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, Romans 8. His and He invites us to draw near to His throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, our great King is also a high priest. And He is sitting on a throne of grace. And His love invites us to come to Him, to draw near to Him, so that whatever we need, we can look to Him and He will provide in accordance with His wisdom. His throne of grace, His loving throne of grace is a perpetual refuge for His children. And it was this great love of our King that caused Him to come down from heaven and to live a life without sin so He could save us from our sins. It was the love of this great King that was willing to sacrifice His throne in heaven for a cross. It was the love of our great King that moved Him to come down to earth voluntarily to live a sinless life, to become the bearer of our sins, to suffer for our sins. It was the love of our great King who came down, who is the Lord of life, who died that we might have life. To suffer our hell that we might be with Him forever. It's the love of our King that was willing to come and die as a criminal on the cross to pay the full penalty for all of our sins past, present, and future. It's the love of our King that now invites us as part of our worship of Him is to come and bow the knee to Him in heaven as we remember the sacrifice of His love to save for Himself a people. And that is our privilege now as we consummate this service as we bring it to a conclusion, focusing on the kingdom of God, looking at our great King, and see that ultimately He came down from heaven to die on the cross and to suffer. To bear all of our sins and to bear the wrath of God, the curse of God, the judgment of God, the condemnation of God, so that whoever puts their faith in Him might be forever forgiven. And look forward to the coming of the fullness of the kingdom when Christ comes back. Well, we're now going to have the joy of partaking of the Lord's Supper. If you're here this morning and you've never put your personal faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And by the way, the word Lord throughout the New Testament for Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, the word Lord is just a synonym for King You say, well, why is He called King all the time? Well, in effect, He is. He's called the Lord. He's the Lord who is the King. He rules. The Lord rules. So we're coming to our King and we're remembering His sacrifice on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. But if you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, then we ask you to let the elements pass you by. To think about your sin. To think about the judgment day coming. And that there is only one way to flee and escape that day of judgment. And that's to come to Jesus Christ now as your Lord and Savior. Don't put it off. Come now. He's willing to save you if you will come to Him. But you must come. No one else can save you. You must come and put your faith and trust in Him. For those of us who have been born again and have put our trust in Jesus Christ, we now look forward to remembering the elements that they might help us to, to enter into the, 
the, the, the memory of what Christ did on the cross for us. We begin by breaking the bread. The bread is a symbol of the body of Christ. And we use unleavened bread because it's a perfect symbol for the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. We break the bread because it's a reminder of the agony, the pain, the suffering that He endured for us on the cross. When the nails were driven into His hands and His feet, when the crown of thorns was crushed on His brow, the shedding of His blood, all of that, and the breaking of the bread gives us some audible sense of just the torment, the pain, the suffering that He endured because of His love for you and for me. I love it in the prophecy of Isaiah when Isaiah is looking way ahead in the future of the cross of Christ and he says that he was pierced for our transgressions He was crushed for our iniquities. And that's how much your King loved you to save you from your sins. Well, if the uh, ushers would please come forward, we will begin to pass the bread. Before you partake, I would encourage you to examine your life. See if there's any area of your life that is not in submission to your King that's not under the reign and rule of Jesus Christ, that you would confess it and turn from it. And then thank Him for dying on the cross for your sins. And give Him praise and glory because only He can save us. Let's uh, give thanks to God for the bread. Heavenly Father, thank You uh, for Your kingdom. And though Adam and Eve lost it in the garden, You sent Your Son to be the perfect image of the invisible God who would live a sinless life and voluntarily sacrifice Himself on the cross to pay the full debt of sin that we owed. So Father, as we think of our King, He's also our Savior. And we want to give You praise and glory and reflect upon His great loving sacrifice for us to draw out of our hearts your love for Him. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.